such a tough one. I mean, I guess there's all the cliches out there um, of just, you know, believing in yourself and trying hard, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's just a long road. Like, you, you really don't hit your straps in a lot of athletic events. And I guess I'm talking middle to long distance. And, you know, between that 25 and 30, you know, 30 years old. So, you know, if you're out there and you're, you know, 16, 18-year-old runner, there's so much water to go under the bridge and you've just got to... You just can't, you've got to be patient. Like it's it's not a, a game for someone that's not patient because there will be so many obstacles and so many challenges between now and when you make your first major team. And um, you've just got to hang in there and not not um, not see that, you know, one bad race or one bad season, you know, don't let it define you. Just, yeah, keep plugging away because I think the secret to it, to middle and long distance running is just being able to put, you know, day after, you know, session after session, day after day, week after week, you know, year after year together. And once you've done that for a few years, that's when you'll you'll really start to see results. And that's, I mean, that's speaking from personal experience and that's where patience comes into it. I mean, you know, I'm the least patient person in the world, but I, I learnt throughout my athletic career you needed to be patient um, because... I know it's like you're a fine wine, and you, yeah. you get you get better. You, you just you do get better with the more training that's in your legs, and and you get smarter. And I guess the quicker you, you can become smarter, <laughs> um, and and know that know to be patient, yeah, the better your career will be. coach came up to, up to me at the end he goes man you have the biggest set of balls I've ever seen. <laughs> and i wish i'd love to re-watch it because i you know i, I ran the race I, I i still remember the feeling i think match with matt, matt baby was there that day yeah um you know i, I want to see i want to see the video because it would look funny it would be a funny race to re-watch Oh, I really want to watch that now. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna try to find it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, it got me. A, it's funny. It got me a lot of credit on the circuit. People like, man, like you know, that's unreal. Like you had a crack, you know. Yeah. I was always, I was always about having a crack. I just feel that in your athletics career, you've got so many, you've got limited opportunities. You don't realise until your career starts to come. You know, the last couple of years of your career, you've got a limited time and. Let's face it. I mean, it's not often that you're just in the, you know, in the best shape of your life. Like that, and all the stars align. It's like, well, I'm in Monaco. There's a pacemaker. There's good weather. Why would I just trot around at the back of the pack and, you know, run 4:05 and come eighth? Like, what does that mean? Like, I may as well have a crack. And I, I'm glad I did. It was, it was fun. Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow, and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Run Culture Podcast. Today, I'm very lucky to be chatting to Sarah Jamison, who was a three-time Olympian in the 1500 metres for Australia. She 
uh, got the silver medal at the 2006 Melbourne Com Games in the 1500 and was the former Australian 1500 metre record holder. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Oh, thanks for having me, Dane. No, I'm, I'm wrapped to have you on. And uh, where I wanted to start the chat, Sarah, was, and I start this with most people, is how did you get into running? I, I've done a bit of reading and I saw that um, you had a, three brothers, I think, and um, yeah. they were right into sport. And, and in this one article, I read that even at age nine, you had visions of wanting to be an Olympian. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, um, it probably just started, I was always a very active kid that liked to run around and play any kind of sport and having three brothers you just that's just what we did uh, I guess back in the, the 70s and 80s without screens um yep. so yeah I think our next door neighbor was starting up a little athletics club and just asked if we wanted to to come down and give it a go and that was my first taste of athletics probably the age of seven or eight and then I remember seeing the the LA Olympics on TV in 84 and I remember the, the Australian team walked out and I was just mesmerised and I remember saying to my parents, I want to do that one day. And that's probably where the, the Olympic dream started. Nice. And were your brothers uh, into running and um, as well? Um, I thought well, they could have been, but I always yeah, say that they're a bit mentally soft. They were... <laughs> they, um, they didn't like they they didn't really like hard work. My youngest brother, he could have been quite good, very similar physique. Um, yeah, he had quite a bit of talent, but um, just as a, as a schoolboy, he was always you know well above average, but just didn't didn't like to hurt himself. So I, I think middle distances were never going to be for him. Yeah, and uh, so how did you know um, running was your thing? Um. I think as humans, you just like what you're good at. And I think, you know, I was pretty decent at all sports that I did um, without trying to sound, you know, big-headed or anything. But I yep. was always above average at, at any sport that I tried except for swimming. I sucked at swimming, um, <laughs> as a lot of runners do. Um, but, I, yeah, I think you just like what you're good at. And I just realised that, hey, I'm better than, you know, 80% of people at this. And, you know, I like to win. I like to to sort of, you know, go for personal best. And that, that's what kept me going. Yeah, yeah. And and what was training like um, back when you first started? So did you have a coach and, um, uh, yeah, how did, how did you go about it as a youngster? Yeah, I remember my dad was always really supportive um, of, of my running as a kid and he was always you know he'd help out and volunteer at the center and he was always looking for more information you know what should this kid be doing in this age and I remember him speaking to a, a coach here um at, she was coaching Ray Boyd who you might know oh, yeah. Australian marathon runner and he he asked for advice I think I was 11 or 12 and said what should Sarah be doing and she said maximum I remember it was three 2k runs a week that was the most she kind of suggested as an 11 or 12 year old um so you know I would I wouldn't always do that um but you know dad would take me out sometimes I would go to the beach and you know I'd try and beat him in some sprint races that that was the extent of it until I was um year eight so I remember getting to high school and I was approached Lynn Foreman was finishing off her her running career and moving into coaching I remember Dad had actually taken me down to Perry Lakes, the old Perry Lakes Stadium, and she was trying to qualify for the 800 metres 
Um, it, yeah, it would have been the 88 Olympics. Um, so Dad took me down and be in the papers that she was having this attempt to try and qualify for the Olympics and she just missed out. And she pretty much moved from straight from being an athlete into coaching. And, yeah, I was her first athlete. She approached me at a school carnival and said, do you have a coach? No, I didn't. And, and that's when my, I guess, my more professional athletics life started. Yeah, so, I mean, Lynn being a four-hurdler herself, you know, and she went on to run the 800. She came from sort of more of a sprint-type background, so that's how I was trained from pretty much, um, yeah, a year eight kid, so 13 to, to 18. Lots of, you know, speed stuff, lots of drills, lots of technique stuff, lots of hurdle drills. I remember I, we did a lot of hurdle drills. Um, but, yeah, I, I really, truly believe that it was the best grounding for me, for my athletics career, and probably explains why I did, you know, I was still running competitively at 35. Yep, yep. So, so you weren't doing bulk mileage, you were um, doing sort of more uh, um, speed orientated and technique orientated yeah. sort of program? Totally, yeah. yeah. Look, I, I remember I was trying to think back to sessions that we did. I remember, you know, the longest reps that we ever did in winter, I remember three 1K reps would be the, the maximum that we ever did as, you know, a 17 you know, 16, 17-year-old, I think the longest run I ever did was a 50-minute run. Um, yep. And I remember going to the World Juniors in 1994 and finding out that people train twice a day and I think <laughs> I'd, I'd been training three times a week and I couldn't believe it. It, just, it blew my mind. I couldn't believe that that actually happened and yep. that was a real eye-opener for me going to the World Juniors in 94 and hanging out with other Australian athletes who were training, you know, 10 times more than I was. Yes. Yeah. In those um, World Juniors in 94, um, were they in Portugal? And um, can you they remember were, yeah. how you went? And um, I you... went rubbish. I okay. went really rubbish. Um, I think only training a few days a week. Probably didn't hold me in good stead to be competing against the, the best juniors in the world. Um, yeah. But in saying that, Sue, I think I had surgery on my legs. I think I qualified. Um, I needed surgery. The trials were at the um, Australian Nationals. I had to do the Nationals to, to get picked on the team. And I'm assuming we went away in July, August. Um, and I had surgery straight after the Nationals. I'd been diagnosed with compartment syndrome. Um, so, yeah, had surgery in April and then went to, to Lisbon to compete in in July, August, so yeah, it, it probably wasn't the best preparation. Okay, yep. And then after that, um, seeing as you found out that a lot of the runners that you were competing against were doing a little bit more training, did that um, inspire you to do more training or like obviously you just had the compartment syndrome surgery as well. Um, uh, after 94, um, uh, what did you do um, training wise? Yeah, um, I guess I was with Lynn for probably another, you know, four years after that. And okay. I mean, she, I remember coming back and we had the conversations about, you know, training and she just said, look, you're, she always believed I was going to be a 3000 metre runner. Um, she said that from the get go and the 3000 metres was still the event for women. Um, the 5k hadn't been added to the program. So, um, yeah, I mean, she always had that vision in mind, but she just said, look, slowly does it. We've got to work on other things. You've got to get as fast as you can when you're young because, you know, it's hard to develop speed when you're older. We must work on this now. And, you know, I I believe myself now as a, as a coach of young athlete, I still believe that's the right way. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and then um, looking at um, your career progression, um, you really focused on the fifteen hundred over your career, and um, like I saw um, in ninety six, um, you got your fifteen hundred down to four fifteen, um, mm-hmm. and uh, can you remember? Um, yeah. Uh, that, that that sort of period between 94 and 98 um uh because I, I saw in 2000 you made your first olympics and and ran 406 and it seemed like you really um that was a massive improvement um uh can you remember that period sort of around from 94 to 96 because i suppose that's when you're progressing from a junior to a senior um and how you, yeah. how, you how you coped yeah um I, I guess between 94 and 98, really. 98, I relocated from Perth to Melbourne. But in that period from 94 to 98, I was just, I had the compartment surgery in 94, but then was diagnosed with it three more times and had surgery three times for compartment syndrome in that period. Um, whether I ever had compartment syndrome, the, the jury is out um, because I was told I had it for a fourth time and that's when I really did spit the dummy oh. and decided to come to Melbourne and speak to Chris Bradshaw who was um, who had travelled with our 94 World Junior team and he, he just felt my legs and said, you don't have compartment syndrome, do not have surgery for a fourth time. Okay. So in that period that you mentioned, I was pretty much just in and out of hospital having surgeries on crutches um, I don't know how I ran 4.15 in that period. Um, yep. I, couldn't, I couldn't answer that, but I guess I would have the surgery, I'd rehab, get back up and running. And, you know, for anyone that probably followed my career back then, um, you know, probably, yeah, I guess that'd be amazing if they knew the background to, to those to that period of time. And, yes. you know, it was, it was a hard period. I remember so many people said, why don't you just give up? You know, people didn't understand why I was having all this surgery. It seemed over the top, but... I guess I had that burning desire to just be the best I could be and I knew that I was I was better than that. And yeah, I remember standing on the start line at Nationals one year, Nationals are in Melbourne, it was around ninety-eight, and I heard someone were on the start line at the Nationals and someone in the crowd that were on the fence at the fifteen hundred start at um, Olympic Park and said, Oh, who's gonna win this race? And one guy said, oh, I think Sarah Jamison will win. And then some the other guy said, Oh no, she's gone. She's oh. She's, she's no good anymore or something. I heard it. Was like, oh, you know. It was 98, I remember, because Mandy Giblin, I think, won the race and it was, he was a safety pulse for um, the Koala and Focom games. Yep. But, you know, that, that was the things that the negativity and people telling me I should quit and hearing, you know, firsthand hearing those comments on start lines, it was, I could have quite easily given it away, but I, I just stuck at it. And then made the decision to move to Melbourne to, I guess, start chapter two of my, my running career. Nice. And then with the compartment syndrome, how did you actually get on top of that, do you think? Um, uh, what did Chris Bradshaw suggest in the end? And um, Yeah. yeah. Um, well, he just basically, I, I was still living in Perth. I flew to Melbourne and he said to stay for two weeks. I'll find out what the problem is. I can feel like touching your legs he said your your fascia is not the problem you know in compartment syndrome syndrome as you know Daniel's obviously when you're the fascia stays too tight with you know exercise the, the muscle expands a bit and it just creates this awful tension yep um he said he could feel by touching my legs um 
yeah, that, that, that wasn't the problem. So, you know, we, I had a whole heap of tests. I had angiograms. I had a whole, you know, range of tests and I had a nerve conduction study and they found that I had a trapped perineal nerve in both legs. Yep. So I stayed in Melbourne um, and just had friends in Melbourne that looked after me and had the surgery. Um, yeah, Chris came into the surgery, into the theatre and said that my nerves were just pretty much, yeah, pretty heavily trapped and they cut a lot of tissue, cut a lot of muscle away and just made a nice clean tunnel for the nerves to pass through. And you know what? After I rehab from that, I never, ever had a, had a problem. Yeah. Um, a compartment syndrome type feeling in my legs ever again. And my gut tells me that I never actually had compartment syndrome, had surgery on it three times. I had complications with one of those surgeries and had to have surgery again um, to get rid of um, and my legs were just internally bleeding. So it was a lot of dithering around from 94 to, to pretty much 98 in and out of hospitals. And then was this the time where um, you started getting coached by um, Scubo? No. So then um, once I'd had the surgery in Melbourne, flew back to Perth um, and I was about to graduate. I did a Bachelor of um, physical, physical and Health Education and I think I had six months left of my degree and I thought once I've finished my degree, um, I'm going to move to Melbourne and, and sort of start that next chapter now that my legs are, are fixed. So um, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, um, he, he was an 800-metre runner and we had a friend, Mark Gorski, who was living here as well. And the three of us just said, when you finish a uni degree, let's just go. So we just jumped in the car and drove to Melbourne. Yeah. And we did up to be coached by Peter Fortune. Peter Fortz had, a, had an awesome squad. Um, Freeman was in his squad. Tamsin Lewis, um, he had, you know, just a whole range of of guys for the boys to train with and girls for me to train with. So yeah, we had, we teed that up before we got to Melbourne and, and started training the forts. Did, um, how, how, because this is obviously around the time that Kathy Freeman was um, at the top of her game. Like how, how was it training sort of um, in her, know, alongside her or in, in her group? Like obviously you're doing different training, yeah. but um, yeah, I look just to rub shoulders with someone, you know, of that calibre was, I mean, for us just being, I feel like we were just naive runners from Perth that had no idea. Um, so to suddenly be rubbing shoulders with Victorian athletes um, who, you know, were a lot harder trained and just knew what was going on. Um, and, you know, state league on Thursday nights, it used to be at um, Olympic Park. It was just pretty much like a national championship to every Thursday night the competition was great and you know we got flogged but you just got better and better and you just learned more about you know about yourself and realize what what we needed to do if we were going to match motors with these people and having someone like Freeman in the squad just you know watching observing someone like her and her professionalism I guess um, yeah we, we just learned you know learned a lot in a very short space of time yeah and and you qualified for um, the Sydney Olympics in 2000. And I remember um, in 2000, you were having like a pretty good rivalry with Georgie Clark um, at mm -hmm. the time. And um, you were both running so well. Um, what were some of the things that changed over those two years um, to suddenly you were more consistent and um, you made an Olympic team and... and um, yeah, you shaved a big chunk of time off your 1,500-metre time. Yeah, I think, um, you know, in, 
in all reality, just not being injured and having that consistency. I, I don't think I'd ever train for longer than than a year or six months where I was told, hey, you've got compartment syndrome, come and have some surgery. You know, it, that had gone on for a few years. So I think to, to finally have had that surgery um, under the guidance of Chris Bradshaw and then, you know, it, it, it changed my life. It did, you know, suddenly I was injury-free and um, thoughts worked. Um, you know, he was really open-minded and got me into training a lot with Rab, Chris Wardlaw's girls, who were 5K, you know, more 5K-type girls. And, you know, I could, I don't, I'd never really run much longer than an hour and I was suddenly running with these girls and, you know, doing, you know, session, I remember three laps of the tan with, you know, each lap had to get faster and I would get flogged because I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd never, you know, done hard training. I'd never run long and I'd never, you know, run hard for a long amount of time. So, you know, each week I'd get flogged and I'd just aim, I'd rock up the next week and just aim to get a little bit closer to them, a little bit closer to them. And that that really, I, I still put down the sessions I did with, you know, Kate Anderson and Anne Cross as the reason um, that kind of got me on that Olympic team in 2000. Yeah, yeah. So just that... Um... Um, c- consistency, but then also um, starting to do a bit more vo- volume. Um, and it yeah. sounds like you just got the environment right too. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I was having fun. It was hard work, but I, and I, but I was having fun at the same time. And um, yeah, it was a great environment to be in. Yeah. And um, how was um, your f- first Olympics? What, what can you um, remember um, as you reflect back on Sydney 2000? Yeah, I think um, it, my, my experience was probably similar to that of Lisbon, um, the World Juniors, to be honest. Um, you know, I just blown away, hadn't really competed as a as, as an older athlete internationally. So, you know, I'd, I'd look at other, you know, people from other countries and just assume they were better because they're from another country. You know, you kind of just were, I was overawed. And I think also my first Olympics being a home Olympics, there was just that extra... Um, extra buzz there were so many functions and um, you know everyone in the village was you know their volunteers were Australian and they just wanted to chat and pat you on the back and it was just (laughs) it was probably too much for a first Olympics Um, yeah you know I I hadn't made the team by much you know I ran the time obviously I got on the team but I wasn't an established you know world-class runner so it was just, um, I don't want to say a baptism of fire or anything like that, but, you know, again, I learned so much. I learned about, you know, training camps. We had lots of training camps sort of in the lead up in Noosa, um, Nudgee, you know, all kinds of places and living with other athletes again. And, you know, it was just a, a big learning experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I read an article where... Um, uh, one of the questions um, um, in the interview with you was um, what were some of the biggest learnings or takeaways from your career? And you sort of mentioned that um, just um, believing in yourself and, and, and uh, learning that you're good enough and, and, and not fearing failure. Um, It sounds like you were sort of at this stage of your career, you were still trying to find your feet um, and um, yeah, yeah, um, establishing that belief that, I suppose, came later in your career? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, I kind of, I believe that I was better. I always believed that I could be better. And I believed that, you know, I had something, yep. something that was better than I currently had, but, you know, how, how good I could be, I never knew that. Um, and I, everyone goes through periods. It's not like you consistently think, it's not like you consistently believe in yourself. You do have, you know, it, it ebbs and flows and you have times where, 
you know, we're, as runners, I guess we're, we're so objective, you know, you have your splits, you, yeah. you see, you, you, you do 10 400s, you see that was slower than last week. So you think you're, you know, unfitter than you were last week. It, you know, it's, it's a mental game running and it's all about just being as mentally strong as you can um, at the right times. Yeah. 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 And um, so then like after um, Sydney, um, you went on and you um, made it to um, Athens and made it to the 2004 Olympics. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I suppose um, uh, in this block of time from 2000 to 2004, um, can, you, can you remember um, this period of your development as an athlete? Yeah, I think that's um, in that period, um, I think I was, I'd moved completely over to Chris Wardlaw as my coach because I was pretty much training with his girls 90% of the time. Yeah. Um, and that was all really amicable. But then um, Rab took up a job in Hong Kong. So I was going to have to find, um, you know, someone else to train with. And Bruce Scrimmon's squad was the, the most obvious choice. Um, and he'd coach obviously Mottram and, and Georgie, they had gone on um, to be coached by Nick, I think, at the time. Nick Bado. Um, but, you know, it was a squad, and, and Scribo had a, a great bunch of guys that were just, you know, so supportive of me and helped me day in, day out, day out with all my training. So um, it was, yeah, that was a really kind of good move for me um, just to have that amazing support. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was a big, that from 2000 to 2004 was, was huge in terms of my improvement. And... I guess how I viewed myself and the belief that I had in myself that I did belong on that world stage. Yep. Um, one of my um, best friends, um, Matt Davy, um, Matt Mattress, he um, yeah. um, went on a, um, a European um, tour with you, and um, uh, you know, um, trained trained with you, and was. Um, uh, just a training partner. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he often recalls that, and he really enjoyed that experience. Um, do you, like um, what? What? What are some of the memories from some of your European campaigns and your um, your trips over to Europe, where you were, um, I suppose, trying to run fast and um, mm-hmm. yeah, run the best fifteen hundred you could. Yeah, I guess um, I always always believe that, you know, you should train with someone that's better than you. That's what got me, you know, better initially when I came from Perth, you know, moved from Perth, was suddenly getting walloped in training and racing. And you just, you know, every day I just tried to get faster and better. So I always believed I needed a training partner um, to be with me to, you know, run two steps ahead. So I had someone to chase. And every time I went to Europe or, um, you know, a training camp to America, I'd always take um, someone with me and, you mentioned, yeah, Mattress came with me. Um, I think we went to Fayetteville um, one year and on a, on a training camp, went to America, um, and then we went to Europe. I had, you know, a host of a host of guys, you know, Brenton Rowe, Nick Ashton, Dan Quinn, Jeremy Thompson, Jules Marsh, like a whole heap of guys that, you know, from time to time just helped me for a big block of time and were really instrumental in sort of, you know, helping me be the best I could be. And... You know, to travel away, it's a pretty lonely sport and, you know, you, you don't make large sums of money. And I think, you know, travelling away with one other person, um, 
and that you know we'd shop together cook together run together you know you were you were not alone in a foreign city there was someone there and you know it was just a team quite often it would just be myself and my training partner um belting it out around a track in germany or you know the uk or wherever but you know it was important for me to have that one person there um and you know all the guys that came and went away with me i'm really super super friends with them still to this day and I'm really thankful for what they did for me because if without them I wouldn't have done what I what I did yeah that's awesome and with um the coaching um uh like so with Scrivo's training how did that differ from say um Peter Fortune and I mean or what were some of the um uh some of the learnings that you got and and um some of the things that I suppose do you feel during this period that really progressed you as a as a runner? Um, so you've gone from yeah. when you were a junior, you, you didn't do much volume and you with Lynn Foreman, you were sort of really focusing on the speed side of things. And then, yeah, gradually um, went over to Peter Fortune and then Chris Wardlaw and then Bruce Griven. Like over that journey with all the input from the coaches, um, I suppose, what, what, were, what were you sort of learning from during this period? Yeah, I think um, by the time I got to Scrivo, you kind of start to know what works best for you Um, because I had been so injured over the years and with all those surgeries that I had in the early days, like it it left me with um, a lot of weakness in my calves, in my lower legs, and it was always something that it did plague me for for my whole career, you know, just my calf weakness was a real problem, Um, lots of calf tears, lots of calf injuries, lots of plantar fasciitis, that sort of stuff. Um, so I, I guess I got to know what I needed in, in a way by the time I got to Scribo, but I could never be self-coached. I'm not one of those people that could write my own program and go and do it. I'd write way too much and I'd do way too much. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in the first few years, I, you know, followed Scribo's program, um, to the letter, but, you know, in the, in the latter couple of years, we bounced off each other a lot and, um, yeah, I wouldn't say that I, you know, he still came up with the sessions, but we, we kind of knew what, what we needed to do. And I guess we had, you know, my diaries from, from previous years and, you know, were able to you know, just mirror stuff at certain times. Um, but, you know, it, there was nothing between all the coaches that you mentioned, Fort, Chris Wardlaw, Scrivo, there, there weren't huge differences. It's just that my body allowed me to, to, to do more, to do the training that's required to be a world-class middle distance runner and, you know, everyone's different, but I was definitely more of a, a 5K, 1500 runner. Yep. Um, so, you know, my, my mileage had to be higher and I'd sort of sit between 120 and 140. And I, and I learned that once, you know, I got to Scribo over the years, you just learn a little bit more about yourself. Um, and, yeah, that when I was consistently running between 120 and 140Ks a week, that's when, you know, I was in good shape. I remember... It would have been around about this time or a little bit later, um, you did a presentation, I think it was for Athletics Victoria, and it was a really good presentation because um, you were managing, I think, your calf trouble and your Achilles trouble at the time, and you're going through how you couldn't do much speed work um, all the time. Um, you, you had to you had to temper it with sort of more 5k training um yeah. and then and then you had to make sure that you kept doing some gym um and i remember um for some reason it sticks in my mind um your your gym in the shed and um you had um yeah all the this, this um weight set up 
Um, yeah, like I think that was, um, so I, I took a lot out of that because I, I thought it was, yeah, it showed that you'd learnt your body and you, you were training yeah. individually for your event um, and knew that you, yeah. you had a certain capacity to do speed work, but you, yeah, there, there was a time where it could be too much for your calves. Yeah, I think um, that's what I kind of really realised in the in the last couple of years. I couldn't if I if I tried to bang out two um, hundreds in you know sub twenty nine seconds, I'd I'd hurt my car, I'd tear a calf. You know, it was just I could do it. Like I you know I could I could do it if I wanted to, but it, it yeah it, it just wasn't an option. So just knowing your body and it was I remember one of my competitors Melindy Elmore from Canada she came and stayed with me in the UK just for a period between races and you know she could not believe that I never ran 200s quicker than you know 29 30 seconds she's like how's that possible like you know what about when you kick down in a race and you know the <laughs> the truth is that you know I I was crappy in rounds at, at major champs I was I was a crappy rounds runner because I had no speed. So in a, in a race that was slow with a kick down, you know, I was, I was cactus. Um, <laughs> I needed a race that could be fast from the gun, you know, more of a time trial type race, you know, where I could just flog myself and call on that strength because I didn't have speed. I, I actually did not have speed and, uh, you know, I got found out and I remember Beijing Olympics, I just felt like it was the most depressed I've been about any any of my races you know it was just a sickening feeling because you know I missed out on the spot by 0.4 uh, a final sorry by about 0.4 of a second or 0.2 of a second whatever it was I'd run 406 didn't make the final because it became to a kick down I tried to push the pace a little bit in the heat knowing you know what was going to happen and then, you know, the final, you sit, I sat in the stands and the final's run and it's, you know, a race that would have suited me perfectly. You know, it was hard from the start. I think it was one in 401. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was just, if I could have taken that element out of middle distance racing rounds, I would have been a, a happier person. But um, yep. <laughs> yeah, I think my lack of ability, my lack of ability to do speed work did really cost me a lot of times in my career. Yeah, in the championship style races. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, to give um, some listeners some context, um, in 2006, you ran the Australian uh, 1500 record, um, and that was the Australian record for 12 years. Um, you ran four minutes flat, 0.93 um, in Stockholm. Was that one of the Diamond League events? Um, uh, and... I suppose that would have been one of those runs where it was strong from the start. And uh, can you can you remember yeah. that, re recall that race and and how you felt afterwards? Like it would have been pretty fulfilling, I, I reckon. Yeah, like I never went. Um, I never went into a race thinking, oh, I'm going to try and beat the Australian record. I, I can't remember. I think I was a 402 runner just before. I think I ran 402 and a half or something. Um, and it it wasn't. It was always in the back of my mind the Aussie record, but. You know, it's, I went into that race and, you know, they we, we were told the pace was going to be fast. You know, it was going to be, I think it was meant to be 63 second laps. Um, and I just thought, I'm just going to go for it. So I was just feeling good. It was good weather. Um, I remember the gun went. And I remember going through, I vividly remember going through the 800 and looking at the, the clock that was on the side of the track and it was 2.06 at the 800. And I thought, shit, like, my PB was really 202 for 
for eight hundreds, I've I've been going shit. This is fast, you know. Uh, and then I thought, well, what am I going to do? Slow down, or I'm like, let's just see what happens. Just keep rolling, and I just kept rolling and rolling, and yeah, it was just able to hang on. Um, and you know, I remember crossing the line and seeing the time come up on the board, and it was close, like to a big PB. It didn't still wasn't hitting Aussie record, and then it flashed up on the big screen there, you know, national national record, and. I remember Murray Plant was standing on the side of the track. He wasn't my manager, but, um, yeah, he kind of, you know, he got a little bit excited. And, you know, it was just a fun moment. The British girls that were kind of celebrating with me, congratulating me. So, you know, and I had some of my best mates um, were in Stockholm that, um, competing also. I think there was Bronwyn Thompson, who was always my roommate. Um, Steve Hooker was there. Um, Vicky Mitchell, Clinton Hill, 400 runs. So we had a good cohort of people that had been my friends for a long time and been on the circuit so you know it was great and we had a you know good celebration that night and yeah it was great so life life on the circuit um like how did you financially make it work um like how tough was it um and uh I mean it's probably really interesting for listeners to I don't know get a bit more of an insight of um yeah um yeah what that lifestyle was like? I think, um, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to try and sugarcoat it. It's yeah. it's pretty it's a pretty tough um, tough gig. Yeah. You know, I I would always go to Europe for sort of three three to four months every year and, and just stay there. So you were paying rent in Melbourne and then you'd be paying rent in Europe somewhere. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of the time I relied on friends. You know, for the early years. We had friends in Ireland, you know, it wasn't great weather for, for training, but it was, you know, free accommodation. They were kind enough to let us stay. Um, so we just did what we what we had to do to make it work. Um, you know, my, my husband was, he was, a, you know, 147, 800 runner. He, he gave it away. He said, you've got more talent. One of us needs to get a job. So he went and got a job. And if he hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have been able to, to do what I, yeah, to do what I did. It was, you know, paying for a training partner to come to Europe, you know, paying for their accommodation, paying for their flights. Um, you know, it, it, I, I mean, I feel terrible saying it, but I guess by the time I finished my athletic career at 35, I probably had the, the bank balance of a, you know, 20-year-old. Like it was, yes. you know, but yep. it, you do it, you start it because you love it. Um, you do it because you love it. It, and it. It's an expensive sport if you're going to go to Europe for three, three or four months of the year. Um, but you know, I don't regret a single, a single move that I made. I don't regret, um, yeah, sort of paying for myself to try and be the best I could be. Cause I know I got the best out of myself in the 1500. I would love to have had more of a crack at a three K and a five K. I think I, I was a little bit untapped in those events. Um, but you know, I, I would love to have broken the four minute barrier. That was always one thing that, you know, in my mind, I wanted to be the first Aussie woman to break four minutes because I thought, well, that's, you know, something no one can ever take away from you. Obviously, yeah. the record can be broken, and that's fantastic that it has been. But, um, yeah, that probably – I got close, point, point 0.9 off it. Um, but, you know, I, the circuit's expensive. Running's an expensive sport to pursue. If you're going to do it properly, I, I did it properly. I left no stone unturned. Um, yeah, I had – I knew that my body needed a lot of physio and massage. So even when I was overseas, I'd, I'd be paying for that. Um, 
yeah, but no no regrets, that's for sure. Yeah, and like you said, you yeah. no one can take those memories away. Like um, you got no. some really solid solid um, you know, your friends and and, and memories and um and and you you know got the best out of your body. Um, like I said, no no regrets. Um, with yeah. um Melbourne Com Games in two thousand six. Uh, that must be one of your career highlights. It seems like this 2006, um, 2007, 2008 period of your running career was was sort of you at your, your peak, your prime, and um, you got yeah. the silver medal in the 1500 at Melbourne Com Games, uh, um, uh, at Com Games in Australia. So, uh, and then also you ran the 5K in a in a, a really slick time, 1502. Um, no wonder you sort of wish that you might have had a few more opportunities over the 5k um because that's pretty quick (laughs) yeah um I think that was only about my fourth or fifth 5k I'd ever done in my life I was I don't know if I've got undiagnosed ADHD or something like that but I remember when I moved from the 800 to the 1500 I was like oh wow three three and three quarter laps that's just so far I found it hard (laughs) hard to concentrate for that length of time so then moving up to the 5k it was like so many laps. I had to just switch off and not count laps. It just seemed so boring. I, I got bored. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would love to have had more attempts at the three k and the, and the five k. Um, you know, even the steeplechase. Um, you know, that would have been fun to do. Whether my body held up, probably not. Is the is the answer to that? But um, um, yeah, I think. You know, that was that were great years. Two thousand six to two thousand eight. I think I was really knew what I could do, knew what I was capable of, the, the opportunity for us to have a Commonwealth Games, which is obviously a step down from the Olympics in our in our home state. That was amazing. Um, and to have it in March too, which is, you know, obviously rare. No, normally all the events are later in the year. So to have it in March, which suited us, you know, it was just perfect. And, um, you know, it's you said it was a career highlight, and it and I, it is. It definitely was a career highlight. But to be brutally honest, it was actually a career low light as well because it, to get that silver medal, I, I felt like it was the one that slipped away because the way the race unfolded, you know, I was boxed in. I, I didn't. I went into that race. I didn't believe in myself. Like I sort of, I do get sheer myself because I had had a shitty prep leading up to it and. I remember even like three weeks before it, I was in a hyperbaric chamber with an AFL player and heaps of old people at the Walclaws Hospital in Brunswick because I'd torn <laughs> my calf, just had a small tear in my calf. Okay. And I, I wasn't sure if I was going to get to the line, so there was so much doubt. Um, in my mind, I always kept that a secret that that was going on. I didn't want anyone to know that my training had been hampered, but it was in my mind that it played largely on my on my mind. Um I knew I, was, I had the ability to do well, but, you know, I probably just didn't quite back myself, um, yeah, as much as I should have been saying that. I've watched the race now, you know, a hundred times. I've gone to do talks at schools or, you know, all that, and I've put the viands. So I've been forced to watch. I couldn't watch it for years. Um, but, you know, whether I could have got out at another time, you know, I was boxed in on the rail for the pretty much the entire race. You know, I've looked for opportunities when I've rewatched it. I'm not sure. You know, I got aggressive in the last 50 metres and sort of boxed my way out. Um, was told by one of the royals at the medal ceremony that I probably should have got disqualified. <laughs> um, but, you know, I did, I did what I, I could. And I think 
the momentum that the winner was able to to get running down the outside. She came wide down the outside. I just couldn't get that same momentum. Um, but you know, she went on, she went on in her career to run faster than I ever did. So um, yeah, Lisa Dabrisky. I'll I'll never fight race her. Like we had some good rivalries, but yeah, it, it was a career highlight. But it certainly, yeah, it was a bit of a career lowlight as well. I think a lot of runners can, um, yeah, share that feeling. Um, I think, I mean, like for a lot of runners, it, they see, you know, silver silver medal at the Com Games. So they're like, oh, immediately assume that it's going to be one of your career highlights, which of course, you know, it's an amazing achievement, but then it shows oh, totally. we're always just, you know, searching for that bigger wave or that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, to have that, to have that medal now, you know, I, my, I show it to my kids. It doesn't really mean they're a bit young to understand it yet, but, um, you know, I go to schools and, you know, for someone to see, you know, to have something tangible to hold um, and to show people is pretty cool. Like, and, you know, I, I do look back and, the older I get, you know, I think, yeah, it was pretty cool. Like silver medal at the Com Games. If you'd told me before the meet you, you, I was going to get a silver, I would have taken it like that. You know, I would have taken a medal of, of any colour. But, you know, it, it I feel like it, it could have been gold. It was the one that, you know, it got away. And, um, yeah, but to have that medal, like I say, the record was amazing, but it was just a record and, you know, it's been broken. But to have that medal to hold on to and to open up and show people is pretty cool. Um, what were some of uh, the other biggest highlights that when you reflect on your career that you're like, oh, I'm really proud of that or that I, I, I um, really learnt something from, from that? Um, what were a couple of other um, of the biggest um, takeaways and highlights from your career, Sarah? Um, I think like one of my favourite ever races, and I, I wish I could, I've never really found a video of it, um, but I think it was... Pretty much after the Com Games in 06, um, because they had been in March, I didn't, and there wasn't really anything major. There was the World Athletics final right at the end of the season, but I just thought I'm just going to go to Europe and race as much as I can and just have as much fun as I can. Yep. And I think I think I was running 4.06 at the Com Games, so in March, um, but then got down to four minutes um, probably in July. But then I, I sustained that, like I sustained that till September. I think the World Athletics final, I came third or fourth. And no, I think I ran 402. Like I was, I think I did something like 18, 1500 meter races, some incredible amount of races. And I think they were pretty much, you know, four, like under 404, you know, that all of them. And um, the one race that really stands out from that set was um, Monte Carlo. So it was a, a diamond league or golden league as they were known as. Um, and we were told that the Russians wanted, I think, a pace of you know, 206 or, you know, that we were going to go for 355 or whatever they had chosen. And I thought, well, we can, this is a great opportunity. It's a fast, fast track. Conditions are always nice. So, you know, the gun went and the Russians had no intention of running fast and the pacemaker went out. And, you know, it was just one of those split decisions. I thought, well, what do I do? And I thought, stuff it, I'll just go with the pacemaker. And so I went with the pacemaker and I think she pulled out after 800, so I was in front by, I want to say, 50 metres. It was a stupid <laughs> amount. I was so far in front. And I could hear the commentator, and, you know, it was all in French, and I, I did French at school, so I could understand a tiny bit of it. And I kept, I heard my name, but I could just tell by the intensity of his voice um, and the excitement that they were coming. And I knew, I knew they'd come. I knew there were about four Russians that all got banned, I think, not long after that. 
but I could hear that they were coming and it was like when they, I think two of them got past me in the last probably 50 metres of the race, um, it was like I got windburn, like they came past me so fast because I was dying, but I, I pretty much ran like 700 metres, yeah, that far in front of anyone and was just hanging on and the crowd were kind of getting behind me and yelling and um, I remember there was a, so I think I got third in the race and I ran 4 I think it was 4 one and a half or something like that. An American coach came up to, up to me at the end. He goes, "Man, you have the biggest set of balls." I've ever seen. <laughs> and I wish I'd love to rewatch it because I, you know, I, I ran the race. I, I still remember the feeling. I think Matt, Matt, Matt Baby was there that day. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I want to see. I want to see the video because it would look funny. It would be a funny race to rewatch. Oh, I really want to watch that now. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna try to find it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, it got me. A, it's funny. It got me a lot of credit on the circuit. People like, man, like you know, that's unreal. Like you had a crack, you know. Yeah. I was always, I was always about having a crack. I just feel that in your athletics career, you've got so many, you've got limited opportunities. You don't realize until your career starts to come. You know, the last couple of years of your career, you've got a limited time and. Let's face it. I mean, it's not often that you're just in the, you know, in the best shape of your life. Like that, and all the stars align. It's like, well, I'm in Monaco. There's a pacemaker. There's good weather. Why would I just trot around at the back of the pack and, you know, run four oh five and come eighth? Like, what does that mean? Like, I may as well have a crack. And I, I'm glad I did. It was, it was fun. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, well, like for um, some of the junior runners or or really keen runners that are listening to this um uh what are some of the um biggest learnings from your career um or what's what's some advice that um you, you think you, you'd um you'd you would have really liked to hear heard um uh when you started um just to know what you're in for and um to have made the journey uh smoother and easier or or um, that really, you know, when you look back on it, what's some advice that probably would have helped you? Um, oh, it's such a tough one. I mean, I guess there's all the cliches out there um, of just, you know, believing in yourself and trying hard, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's just a long road. Like, you, you really don't hit your straps in a lot of athletic events. And I guess I'm talking middle to long distance. And, you know, between that 25 and 30 you know, 30 years old. So, you know, if you're out there and you're, you know, 16, 18-year-old runner, there's so much water to go under the bridge and you've just got to, you just can't, you've got to be patient. Like it's it's not a, a game for someone that's not patient because there will be so many obstacles and so many challenges between now and when you make your first major team. And um, you've just got to hang in there and not, not, um, not see that, you know, one bad race or one bad season, you know, don't let it define you. Just, yeah, keep plugging away because I think the secret to it, to middle and long distance running is just being able to put, you know, day after, you know, session after session, day after day, week after week, you know, year after year together. And once you've done that for a few years, that's when you'll, you'll really start to see results. And that's, I mean, that's speaking from personal experience and, that's where patience comes into it. I mean, you know, I'm the least patient person in the world, but I, I learned throughout my athletic career you needed to be patient um, because I know it's like you're a fine wine and you, yeah. you get you get better. You, you just you do get better with the more training that's in your legs and and you get smarter. And I guess the quicker you can, you can become smarter, <laughs> um, 
and, and know that know to be patient, yeah, the better your career will be. Yeah, that's such great advice. And because in, in at um, Beijing, you were was that you were thirty three, about then. Yeah, I think I was. Yeah, I was yeah, thirty three. Yeah, and obviously you'd been you made ninety four World Juniors, and you'd been pretty keen uh, with your running for a long long period, and and had all those ups and downs with the surgeries um, and um, people writing you off in nineteen ninety eight. So yeah. like it's it's. That's really good advice, and it's it probably um, advice that I would agree with completely. Like I'm 34 now, and um, mm-hmm. I've I've really noticed that I've seen so many people come and go, and especially in this day and age where a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff that we get on the internet is so instantaneous, and um, yeah. I feel like it's it's um, I don't know something something that's great to hear um, that uh, yeah running really is a sport of patience, and you hear a lot of people say it all the time but um uh it's good coming from someone like you sarah mm-hmm. oh, thanks. i think something else too that just came to my mind is i'd actually dislike to be um i think the extra challenge of running today is social media i think um yep. with you know instagram and um you know other um, socials out there you know seeing your competitors and people you raise you know see seeing their um stuff online and you and it always looks like warm and fuzzy i think you could probably do your head in thinking that your competitors are in great shape and they've just done a great session and you could cook yourself by by spending too much time thinking about it i mean i I, you didn't really know what your competitors were doing as much back in the day and um the thing that got me out of bed running every day was imagining my competitors were out there training hard and that's what did get me out but i guess now with social media seeing pictures where they look fit and they look fast and you know I think you could probably cook yourself by by looking too much at that sort of stuff because I think a lot of it's uh, maybe it's not false but yeah a lot of stuff people put online is yeah it, it's superficial yeah not, not 100% true at all times so I think um yeah just probably try and be a little bit um more introverted and don't worry too much about what your competitors are out there doing yep yeah, especially um, with things like Strava as well, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, de- definitely. Um, um, yeah, I definitely feel like that. Sometimes they can be used well, and but then sometimes you can sort of, um, yeah, yeah. Um, especially with Strava, you can um, overdo it and um, get a bit caught up in it. Um, yeah, I totally. Yeah. And I mean, when we were training, you, you wouldn't want, if you had a ripper session, a PB session, where I didn't want anyone to know about it. Like it was, you know, I wanted to keep it to myself and to my, you, you were just, it was almost like you had this kind of cool secret that you'd just done this amazing <laughs> session and you knew you were going to come <laughs> on blast soon. Like I can't imagine putting up in Strava and telling the world about it. Like that's just, you know. Now that you've done it, done and dusted. Hand, you know? Well, but what what would be one of those ripper sessions? Um, like if you reflect back on it, like I know you probably did quite a few, but like is there any? And it's probably hard to remember. But is there anything that really stands out that you're like, oh gee, that was? I, I remember doing that before, um, uh, you know, in 2006, um, and I just knew I was ready. Like, was there any of those sessions that really stand out? Yeah, yeah. I, I'd probably I'd have to flip back through diaries because I probably can't remember exact times, but I just. Yeah. Probably my a core session was three lap. I do three laps of the tan. Each lap had to get faster, and I knew when 
you know, my cumulative time was, you know, at a certain point or when my last lap was, you know, under X, I knew that I was on fire and that's what, that was probably one key session for me that I knew that I was in really good shape to go to Europe or, you know, obviously I wouldn't be doing it, you know, two weeks out from, you know, 1500, but um, it just showed me that my, my base was there. Um, and then there were other sessions on the track too. Like, you know, I remember once just before Athens, I did an 800 time trial and then some reps after it. And I did 201 for an 800 time trial, um, which was, it's faster than my 800 meter PB that's ever been recorded. <laughs> but um, yeah, just little things like that. And then doing some more reps after it. I sort of think, gee, that was, yeah, a good indication of where I was at. I'd have others, but I'd need to go back and look. Yeah. Um, tell us about how you're going now. Like you've, You've got four kids, um, so not as many as Susie um, from Susie Power from last <laughs> week's episode. Um, uh, and you also run the Perth Run Club, so you do some coaching. Um, you actually had a bit of experience coaching Lyndon Hall before she went to college, um, and yeah. I, I think there's some nice. There's a nice. Um, oh, that's a nice story because she ended up going on to break your Australian record. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, how are you going now? Um, yeah, what are you up to now? And, and also, what do you think of um, how um, Australian's female distance running is going with Jessica Hull running so well and um, recently? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I guess talking about the Australian future, I, I think it looks bright. I mean, Jessica Hull's running amazing at the moment and she's probably spewing that Tokyo's not happening, you know, <laughs> you know right now, but... Um, you know, if she can kind of keep progressing, she'll be exciting to watch over the next few years. I think Lyndon, you know, she's always a bit of a quiet achiever, um, just does her thing and she'll pop out definitely in the next year or two. And, you know, she's still got some really good running left in her. To, to have a part in her career, so in the twilight of my career, I started coaching her. Um, and, you know, she I can't remember how old she was at the time. She must have been about 18 or 20 or something. Um, and it got to the point, you know, I was, I wanted to move back to Melbourne. We'd had one child and my hubby and I had a way that we were both from Perth. Both said when we had kids, we were going to come back to Perth. Um, but, you know, fun place to raise kids by the beach, um, good lifestyle. So we decided to come back. And I remember being at Box Hill and Lyndon was running in a Vic Myler's meet. And I, I was so nervous. I had to break the news to her that I was going to move back to Perth. And, you know, came up with some different options for where I thought, she would be best and you know US College was one of them and Florida was one of them where I had a bit of a connection um so you know I think her her story is a great one too like you know she went over to college and got the best out of herself learned her craft and she's a good tactical runner you know she that's probably one I said no regrets from my running career but um U.S. College, I think, is a good place for a middle Australian middle distance runner to go and learn your craft, learn how to race tactically. I was a shitty tactical runner because, <laughs> I mean, growing up in Perth, I'd just go to the lead and, you know, I was out in front and, hey, you just blast it and you'd win. That's, the minute I got in a pack, I was always, you know, I wasn't as good a runner. Yep. Um, but Lyndon, you know, has raced indoors, outdoors, cross countries over in the States and she's a, a, a tactically savvy runner, um, as is Jessica Hullen you know, Jen Lacays, you know, all of them that have gone over there and spent some time at college. And, um, yeah, I sort of think, God, you know, how would my career panned out if I'd been a bit more tactically savvy? But, um, 
yeah, I think um, I'm excited to watch, you know, the middle distance and long distance girls over the next few years and even seeing if the older Eloise Wellings can um, get back out there and, and Vicky Mitchell and, you know, just give it one more crack. Um, yep. Yeah. Look, I, I love coaching. Um, my dream would be to coach someone from, you know, a young kid, you know, 10, 12, to become an, an Olympian, take them on that full journey. Um, nice. And, you know, it, it's tough because trying to keep kids interested in the sport is hard. Like it's, you know, as I said before, there's a lot of water that, goes under the bridge before you get, you know, to, to your first senior national team and um, to keep a 10-year-old interested in, in running. Um, yeah, I've got a 10-year-old, a nine-year-old son who, you know, finds running boring. I'm always, you know, he comes and comes to my kids' running sessions once a week and my aim is just to make it as fun as possible um, to think of running games, just to, to keep them engaged and um, to have them listen and just to get as technically sound as possible and, as fast as possible yeah I, I love coaching I I would yeah love to have it as a full-time job I'd love to coach elite athletes but unfortunately there's not much money involved um it requires so much of your time and having four kids um yeah it's just not an option so I just stick to the recreational adults who just come along and you know do their session and go home and they don't call you you know or text you during the day that I've got a sore toe or a, a bit of cold <laughs> or a sniffle, what should I do? Um, they just don't turn up. Um, yep. And then young kids, I love coaching young kids. We've got probably this term, oh, we, there must be about 80 kids enrolled in our kids' oh, really? running session. Um, and that's just lots of fun, yeah, between the ages of six and about 13. Nice. And are you still running yourself, Sarah? Um, is your body, um, yeah, still holding up? Yeah. Yeah, it, it actually, so many people say, oh, haven't you broken down? And yeah. no, I, it's actually, my body's in okay, Nick. I did 12 kilometre trot with some friends this morning. Um, I, I mean, I run now, I used to run with headphones back in the day. I'd get so bored because um, <laughs> I ran so much. But now it's, um, oh, it's just like my escape, I guess. Like I love going for a run, um, don't wear headphones, just listen to my surrounds. And yeah, it's my mental it's my, it's good for my mental health, I guess, having four kids. And, yeah, I really enjoy running still. Uh, ideally, I'd probably run five or six days a week. But, um, yeah, i probably get out about three or four times a week at the moment. Yeah, awesome. Well, um, I've got one more question because I'm wary of how long I've um, held you up and so yeah, appreciative of, um, yeah, this lovely chat. Like, it, um, I've got a lot out of it. Um, but one, one other question, I was, I was wondering, like, if you reflect on your career, like who, who were some of your biggest inspirations? Um, and I know there's probably a few, but um, when you reflect back, um, yeah, who, who were your biggest inspirations of your career? Um, I think one of my earliest ones and um, was a girl called Renee Poetska, who was a Perth girl, um, and she was like Freeman's kind of biggest competitor, like sort of in the lead up to 2000. So she, they were kind of arch rivals over the 400. And... I was best friends with her sister, Lauren, and she was trained by Lynn Foreman as well. So we kind of, you know, grew up, um, yeah, doing our hurdle drills. And she was a four, she ended up being a four hurdler and we got to room together actually at the Sydney Olympics. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Renee, her eldest, older sister, she had been to the Olympics already. She went to Atlanta. I think she went to Barcelona as well. Um, so I, I couldn't believe that I knew someone that had been to the Olympics. It just blew my mind, you know, because that's what I wanted to do. So um, she was definitely one of my early inspirations. Um, 
I guess as I went on, like being being able to see Freeman, and you know, I travelled to some meets with Freeman, like just you know seeing what a freak of nature she was. She was just an, an animal and just an amazing athlete. Um, she was always a bit of an inspiration. Um, other than that, like I always, yeah, I like all sports. Like I just, I guess, you know, look up to people over across the board, and yeah, I think running wise, though, definitely Renee Poisker and Kathy Fran, both four hundred meter runners. Yep. Yeah, no, that's um that's great. Like um thanks so much Sarah for the the chat. Um yeah, uh a lot of people are going to take a lot out of this and and I think um like we sort of said off air before you jumped on, it's great for people to like they obviously know the Lyndon Halls and the Jessica Hulls at the moment, but also to to um to remember like who Sarah Jamison was and um and and is and um and and the best thing is you've gone through your whole career and um so you're able to reflect on it and um what worked what didn't work and uh yeah i think there's a lot of um value that um that um yeah you just um presented then yeah well thanks for having me Dan. yeah i hope everyone enjoyed it